It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. First of all, it's really interesting that in English we use the word taxes, and in Danish you use the word skit, which uh, literally means treasure, and it's probably the most common uh, endearment for a child, that you hear people all the time say to children, oh, me little skit. You'd never say to a kid in the U.S., oh, my little taxes, I love you so much. Huh? And I think mentally it really changes your framework when you're talking to the treasure department about giving your treasure this year and it's the same word that you use for loved ones this is sarah from the left and beth from the right you're listening to fancy politics no shouting no insults plenty of nuance Hello, everyone. We are here together in person recording in Austin, Texas. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a couple headlines, including Representative Omar's comments, the coming Mueller report. And then in the main segment of the show, we'll be sharing our interview with longtime listener and friend Marjorie Skiba. And then to close out, we'll share what's on our mind outside politics. 
Before we dive into the news, I want to remind everybody that we will be at my home church, Florence Christian Church, on April 27th from 10 to 1 to talk about political discussion. There'll be an event that's open to the public and then also a workshop if you want to stay with us for lunch and get into the unique role that churches can play in leading grace-filled political conversation. So the link to get tickets for that event will be in the show notes, and we'd love to see you on April 27th. So first up, I just checked into our hotel, looked at the news, and stood in line and cried at the absolutely heartbreaking images coming out of Paris of the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral. I've been to Paris twice. I've stood in that building. It is I just think there's so few spaces that provide us the visceral reminder of the breadth of human history in the way that spaces like Notre Dame does. I mean, it's this amazing medieval cathedral. It stood in Paris for hundreds of years. They still don't really even know the the precision and the way that the wooden frame, which is now burned, was put up. It's a sacred space. It's an impactful space. And the images just look like something out of Independence Day. It is so incredibly heartbroken. I'm heartbroken for everybody, Parisians, Catholics, the entire world. And as we are recording, we don't know a lot about what caused this or the extent of the damage. And so we will update you on Friday. But today I want to acknowledge this serious loss really for the whole world, Uh, an architectural loss, a spiritual loss, an artistic loss, a cultural one. So the president has been tweeting a lot of inflammatory things. Before we dive into his inflammatory things, I think it is important to put perspective into his coming week. And and while perhaps he might be tweeting inflammatory things, which is the full Mueller report is coming our way in a couple days. It's hard to know how to set expectations around this because I sense that so much of it will be redacted and that we might not learn anything that we haven't already learned through court filings in, in public records where, you know, Bob Mueller has been telling us this story over a period of two years. I was really disappointed by Attorney General Barr's testimony in front of congressional committees where he suggested, well, one, I thought he was really defensive about the entire process. And I sort of understand that. He, like many others before him, at least since 2016 in the Department of Justice, is in an impossible position. I fully understand that no one is going to say, great job, you got this. But when he said that he is concerned that the investigation kicked off with spying on the Trump campaign... I just felt myself lose the little bit of confidence that I had in him because he knows very well the difference between saying, I feel an obligation myself to verify that we have not illegally surveilled a campaign versus I think there was spying. What leads me to believe that it's not more of what we already know is the way he's reacting. The fact that he is, you know, the Times is reporting that he basically said, if I tweet this incendiary stuff about sanctuary cities, it'll distract from the Mueller report. He wants to rile up his base, rile up the media, rile up the left to distract what I'm assuming someone's told him is not going to be awesome stuff revealed in the full report. It's going to be lengthy, too, from what I understand. So I am kind of looking forward to diving into it and really getting into the details because I've been following this so closely for two years now. But I really wish the attorney general would take greater care here. And let me say, 
I think he is right to independently confirm that everything was done properly here. This is a very tricky situation. We've said before on the podcast, we haven't figured out how to properly have oversight over the president, over presidential campaigns. And I think that's really important. And I think it all needs to be done very carefully. I think the way that we use our intelligence gathering capabilities needs to be done very carefully. And if Congress thinks there's a problem with the way FISA is used, Congress should get to work on fixing that. But to suggest in such crass terms that sound so nefarious that something illegal was done to President Trump's campaign here, when that flies in the face of all the evidence that the public has seen, at least, I think was really irresponsible. Well, and it's not as if there's no other investigation into all this. The inspector general has done a report. It's not like he's the only one who cares and the only one who's looked into this. Like, give me a break, man. Well, the Department of Justice is going to have its hands full with the Mueller report and also perhaps with some new legal challenges to the president's approach on immigration. The president has been tweeting up a storm this week that he believes the record number of migrants coming into the country right now should be sent to sanctuary cities because we don't know where, what else to do with those human beings. And I'm just, oh, I'm so frustrated and sad by the way everyone is talking about this. I'm not done to talk about it. I'm sorry. Like, I just think it's such, it's illegal. His own lawyers told him it wouldn't work. They also just don't have the money to do that. I think this is so, such a naked attempt to distract from what he doesn't want to talk about and to try to scapegoat and blame to, I mean, I would like to be appalled. I am appalled objectively at the way, the idea that you would use human beings as weapons against your political opponent. But am I surprised at this point that he would talk about undocumented immigrants or migrants seeking asylum this way? No, of course I'm not. And nobody else should be either. We also shouldn't be surprised that he does this when he wants to distract from something else. It's the same reason that he tweeted out the completely incendiary video about Representative Omar and her comments. He's just trying to play us all so strongly about this. What I feel strongly about, too, though, is making sure that we do say human beings aren't weapons. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not retributive to suggest that immigrants come into any community. We do need to have a conversation in the United States about migration and where people go and where people can settle in the United States once they come into the country. The New York Times has pointed out that most people coming in don't stay in border communities. They have ties elsewhere in the United States. Mm -hmm. Relatives send them money. They get a train ticket or a bus ticket, and off they go to be with family members. And that's part of the, you know, seeming brokenness of the immigration system because once people do that, we don't really know where they are anymore. And so there's a lot of work to do on all of this. I think the terms that the president casted in just keep preventing that work from being done. So true. So he did tweet about Representative Omar's comments. For those of you who haven't heard about this, over a month ago, she spoke at the Center for American and Islamic Relations. She said, and I quote, for far too long, we have lived with the discomfort of being a second class citizen. Frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. Care was founded after 9-11 because they recognize that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. When you first told me about this, you said, I haven't heard the full context, but she said 9-11 was some people did something. And I was like, 
okay. Like, I just, I don't understand the way in which people interpret it. And that she was, like, blowing it off. Like, oh, some people did something. Or that she didn't call them terrorists, an act of terror. Like, I'm just not even 100% sure on the purposeful misinterpretation. I'm 100% sure on what she meant and that it's not offensive when you read the whole sentence. But I'm struggling with, like, even how some people are interpreting this so terribly. My feeling about Representative Omar and Representative Tlaib and Representative Ocasio-Cortez is that the light is just shining too brightly on these women right now in a way that doesn't give them any room to learn mm-hmm. and figure things out. This was inartful phrasing. It was also yeah. factually inaccurate. Yeah. CARE was founded well before 9-11. All of these women have these moments where they're getting tripped up. So do so many of their male freshman colleagues. You know why Nancy Pelosi doesn't stumble in this way? Because it's not her first or her 10th or her 100th rodeo. Mm -hmm. And members of Congress need time to get acclimated to this environment. And because these women are so outspoken and they're women of color, two of them are Muslim. Like there are so many things we haven't seen here before. We are just training the spotlight in. They're happy to take it, as I'm sure many, many of their male colleagues would be too. But it's just putting us in such a ridiculous news cycle and such a nonsense set of arguments that are being exploited by the president. And it's gross. And I just wish it would stop. I totally agree. And I think that he, tweeting the way that he does in our current environment, after the pipe bombs after the shooting at the congressional baseball game is so deliberately incendiary, deliberately just callous and completely ignoring the fact that his words can lead to other people taking really violent action. This woman needs enough security as it is without this. Like I just, I'm sure she's terrified and Nancy Pelosi is said we're going to have to examine her security protocol again. I just, it's so unfortunate from top to bottom. It is unfortunate. And then the reaction to it becomes unfortunate. Like everyone is arguing over who's reacted in strong enough terms. And we're just in such a hyperbolic space right now. And I wish the temperature could come down. And unfortunately, I think it doesn't come down without the president ceasing to tweet amateurish videos Mm -hmm. that look like I don't know, the Blair Witch Project decided to take on a sitting member of Congress. And there is, of course, a component of sexism here that Mm -hmm. is hard to deny, which leads us to a conversation that we've been waiting to have for several days. Sarah and I have been on the road watching the 2020 primary start to kick off over the weekend. There's been lots of commentary about Mayor Buttigieg's announcement. And one of the things that we keep hearing that arouses emotion for Sarah in particular (laughs) is that the democratic party needs to nominate essentially a man in order to beat Donald Trump. No, it's not essentially a man. We had a conversation where someone said, I hate to say it, but a man. And this person was a female. And I feel like the calls are coming from inside the house. This was not a conservative person to hear a liberal woman say this is so discouraging you know, I wrote about this in our newsletter. The first the first thing that really bothers me about this is this idea that the only thing that matters in a presidential contest is who the nominees are. If we learn nothing from 2016, 
we should have learned that there's a lot of factors at play. James Comey, the Russians, Facebook. Like, it's not as simple as, oh, let's just put the pros and cons of each candidate next to each other and see who comes out on top. That's not what's going on here. And so the idea that, oh, we'll just screw it up and lose the whole thing if we don't nominate the right person, a.k.a. a man, infuriates me. It also infuriates me because it, it implies, or some people outright say, oh, well, the nation's just not ready for a woman. False. More people voted for Hillary Clinton. There are more people in this country who are ready for a female president than Donald Trump. That is the math of the situation. And so it's just infuriating to me that this narrative becomes... It has to be a perfect candidate, and the only perfect candidate is a man. Oh, man. I just, it makes me so angry. I shared with Sarah as this came up during our travels over and over that I fully see and honor her anger. And also, I understand why older women in particular have this hesitation and have this concern because I think a lot of older women have just been around long enough to see that we still haven't ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, that in their workplaces, the people who sign the checks still tend to be men, that progress has come very, very slowly. And so I understand why they are gun shy. And I think we dismiss those concerns at our peril because there is something really important about those experiences, not that they are dispositive, but that they represent experience that needs to be taken into account and discussed and processed. I understand why older women sometimes feel like younger women, especially younger white women like us, have expectations that are just out of line with reality. And so I don't want to be dismissive of either your perspective, Sarah, or of the perspective of people who are worried about this, because I really understand where everybody's coming from. Well, it feels like when people say that, that it's just one more pound of flesh, right? Just wait your turn, swallow the unfairness of the situation, understand that the election matters more than anything else, and just we just need one more pound of flesh so that we can win. You just wait your turn, get over it, face the complete sexism and just unfairness of the whole thing and swallow it. And I'm tired of swallowing it and I'm only 37. So I don't understand how someone who's older than me and has been swallowing it for their whole lives doesn't just want to burst into flames at the implication that the only way to win is to nominate a man. I, you know, and I think the important distinction here is the distinction between sort of the media and the Twitter class and the regular voter. I think in both cases, part of the reason Pete Buttigieg is soaking up all the air in the room is there some sexism? Of course, there's never not sexism. But people like fresh faces. They just do. And all the women in this race right now are either senators or representatives. And that means they have, especially the high-profile female candidates, have high, they're high-profile. They're not new and exciting in the same way some mayor from South Bend, Indiana is, in the same way that the governor of Arkansas was, in the same way that a brand-new senator from Illinois was. And I get that. And I think there's just something appealing about that. We like people that are new and that we can put a new story on. 
However, I think the coverage of him is sort of indicative of the fact that you see all this flowery, glowing coverage of Mayor Pete, and then you see these polls that are still Bernie and Biden occupying like 60% of the field. And, you know, I think that is indicative of the sexism and limited vision of (laughs) the sort of average voter. But it's like there's blind spots, whether you're talking about. And there was an interesting New York Times piece about this, about this sort of that the Twitter Twitterverse, the media leader, way more liberal than the average Democratic voter, which is not surprising, especially when you see that polling. But I think both have this sort of. I don't know. I hate to say just keeping using the word sexism, but it just seems like the best word when it comes to the female candidates versus the male candidates. I can't remember what I was listening to, but someone was talking about voters, I believe, in Ohio who were people who voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. And this time are saying that they want to vote for calm and stability. And the reporter who had been meeting with these folks said they couldn't identify the pictures of almost any of the Democratic candidates except Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So some of it is not, I think, the fresh-facedness. I think some people just aren't paying attention at all yet, which is perfectly yeah. reasonable, and don't know who Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand is. And the debates will change a lot. I really like Mayor Pete, as we've I talked about before. And I'm ready to not canonize him, but just invite him to the debate stage. Hooray that he made it. I think he has important things to say. And see how all of this plays out. I think it is weird that he is sucking up all the oxygen right now. That he's because he can give a good speech. He's being deemed a hero. I think he's an awesome guy. I think he has a really great record and some really good ideas. Also, I think there are other interesting people in this race. It's kind of sad to me to see at this early stage him maybe peaking. Because I, I would hate for him to run out of air for the long haul. And I also hate for other people who are really doing the work out there to not get any coverage right now. I mean, I, I you bring up the peaking too soon a lot. I mean, I just, I think that you're either, you can either ride that media wave or not. And I don't think that's up to chance. I think that's up to staffing and how adept you are at that. But that was definitely the idea with Barack Obama, and he seemed to do just fine. I think when you're a new, fresh face and you kind of burst onto the scene, yeah, there's definitely a risk that you burn out. But I don't think that's like, I don't think that's just up to the moment. I think that you can escape that. My fear is that that desire for calm will translate into, we can't risk a female. It'll upset everybody. It'll be too controversial. It'll tear everybody apart again. And so people will lean away from that again for a bunch of other different and equally dumb reasons. Going back to what you said about how can older women especially not want to burst into flames, I think we should not believe that they don't. Like, I think you can simultaneously want to burst into flames and also have seen enough in your life to believe that the country isn't there yet. I don't know where the country is or isn't. Well, and when we're talking about the country, right, we specifically mean a handful of states that swing the electoral college. Whether those parts of the country are ready for women or not, I have no idea. And I think that that's a conversation that will play out differently because there are so many women in the race this time, and I'm encouraged by that. But I also wish everybody would just sort of calm down right now and listen to all of these people because there are a lot of really interesting different candidates running and 
letting this race revolve around Donald Trump at this early stage feels like a mistake to me. I agree. So who are you complimenting this week? I would like to compliment two women senators in Nevada. Did you know that Nevada's state legislature is the first in the country where women are a majority of the legislature? No, but that's amazing. It's a tiny majority, 50.8%. But we'll take it. There's been just a political firestorm in Nevada. The majority leader of the Democratic Party resigned because of embezzlement and wire fraud charges. And then another Democratic Assembly member resigned because of sexual harassment allegations. But... That has not derailed the legislature because state senators Nicole Canizzaro and Julia Ratty have stepped up to take on the leadership and have just been pushing the legislative agenda forward. They're working on making sure that the Affordable Care Act protections that are important to Nevada stay in place. They're working on affordable housing. Lots and lots of good work is being done in Nevada despite all of this political scandal because these women have just stepped up and been really effective leaders. Well, since we are recording from the great state of Texas, I thought I would compliment Texas State Representative Jeff Leach, who refused to move a bill criminalizing abortion out of his committee. He is a Republican, and he basically just said it's not pro-life to open up criminal punishments and even the death penalty against women seeking an abortion. And this thanks to Jamie, one of our listeners, for sending this our way. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. A longtime listener, Marjorie Skiba, reached out to us. Marjorie lived in the United States for most of her life and then recently relocated to Denmark. And Marjorie said, if you ever want to talk to someone who is actually living in a socialist country about what that experience is like, especially for an American, I would be happy to chat. And we said, yes, please. So this is about Marjorie's experience. This is not an endorsement of socialism. It is not commentary on how this system might work in the United States. It is a curious exercise in learning about someone else's experience across the world, all of which I say to say, be cool, everybody. I think this is a really fascinating discussion, and we really appreciated Marjorie's time. We're so excited to be joined today by a longtime Fancy Politics listener. Marjorie, I find your emails fascinating because I always experience you as a person who is not an ideologue. I feel like you're just very pragmatic and thoughtful, and you have very strong opinions on things, but they don't check the boxes of an American party politic. Is that a fair description? Oh, absolutely. Before the election, I very much considered myself an independent because I, I felt like I was neither a Democrat or Republican, though both parties had certain stances that I agreed with. So tell us about your history a little bit. You are an American. You are now living in Denmark. How did that come to be? And why are we talking today? Just set it up for us. <laughs> okay. Well, I often joke that uh, I am a uh, Trump refugee. I'm uh, originally from Maine. I'm a second, third generation American, depending on uh, what side of the family you're talking about. I am uh, Jewish, and uh, there's a lot of history running through both sides of my family, and of course, you know, culturally, or histories of people of when uh, things don't look good, you move on and find a new country. I'm both Ashkenazi and Sephardic, and uh, genetically, I think I have DNA from every major ethnic group on the planet. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, as I said, I grew up in Maine. I went to college in Pennsylvania. Then when I graduated from there, I uh, went to Asia. I lived in China for two years with a six-month break in uh, Japan because I wanted to see the world. And that definitely had a 
a big influence on uh, how I view uh, countries and cultures and even who I am as a person. Then I moved uh, outside New York for a few years and I met my husband and we moved up to Massachusetts. He's also American. He's, I think, second or third gen Polish-American on his dad's side. And both of us felt very strongly after the election results that um, we, we didn't want to live in the U.S. anymore and we wanted to go somewhere where we felt more welcome and that it was uh, was safer. So um, we actually made the decision the night of the election. We were sitting in bed uh, with our son. He was two at that point and I was pregnant. And the next day we sat down and looked at countries that needed iOS developers, narrowed it down to which ones on were on very high in the happiness index and started to apply to jobs. And then I was eight months pregnant when we boarded a plane and came to Denmark. That's amazing. I love that people associate family history with places. I love so much that the narrative you just shared is that my family history is we move when we the the play the the act of moving is central to your family history in the same way that places are central to other people's family history. I love that so much. Absolutely. And if you look at Jewish culture, I mean, it's just a tale that runs through. You look at Passover, the idea of Exodus, that they were in Egypt. It wasn't working out, so they decided to go somewhere else. All of our traditions are very mobile. The idea that mourning is lighting a candle because you can do that anywhere. You don't have to visit a grave site. Uh, you know, a lot of ways of very nomadic people. Mm. So tell us about your experience of moving into Denmark as an immigrant. What has that been like for you? Well, I discovered very quickly that you need your CPR number and your yellow card or you're not going to be able to function here. So uh, I'm impressed that there are no walls here, but they have made a system that is absolutely illegal immigrant proof. Mm -hmm. uh, for the first month, we were staying in Copenhagen and we couldn't get our yellow card, which is the health card, until we registered our permanent address and we were waiting for the lease on our apartment. And this meant that we couldn't open a bank account. So my husband couldn't get paid. I couldn't get a library card. Uh, everything required you to have this card to hook into the system. How long a process is it to get that kind of paperwork taken care of? First, if you want to live into Denmark as an immigrant like uh, we are, uh, my husband got a job. And uh, so then myself and uh, my son and later my daughter, we applied for residency with him and he had to prove that he could support us. And then they promised, I think the turnaround of the paperwork was four weeks and it was Exactly that, because we had to, because of my pregnancy, come a week before the end of, uh, of that month. And then exactly May 1st, he got the paperwork, and then mine and my son's came, uh, came a few days later. So the, the online system was very simple to do, but there was a lot of bureaucracy involved. We had to take pictures. We had this problem because the ID photo required you to show your ears and your forehead and your eyebrows. And I have bangs. And for some reason, this had just never come up before. And in the end, I had to take hand sanitizer and slick my hair back so that wow. the picture was how they wanted it. But my experience then and now is that the amazing thing about Danish bureaucracy is that everyone in the system 
really wants to do their job well and they really want to help you, then it might be a 12-step process, but everyone there is going to hold your hand along the way and explain, oh, you need this and you need that. I, I think the biggest problem was finding housing we liked because that was holding up getting the cards. And then they have these things called uh, NEMID, which is what you use in conjunction with your CPR number to log on to your bank account, to log on to the government official email site, to log on to the tax site. And altogether, I think it took two weeks because they have to send it in the mail unless you have somebody who can vouch for you and they have to already have an ID. So one of us had to get an ID first so we could be the person to vouch for the other person. Wow. That does sound like a lot of bureaucracy to plug into the system, but you're right. I mean, the flip side of a lot of bureaucracy in that way is that it's hard to cheat the system. Yeah. I I don't know how you could cheat the system here. It is impressively uh, scam-proof. Can you tell us a little bit about how Denmark is structured? Do you have a city, county? I mean, what's the structure in terms that Americans could understand? Probably the easiest way to understand it is they're essentially uh, municipalities. So we live on the island of Zealand, which is split into two regions. You have the capital region, which is uh, around Copenhagen, and then you have the rest of the island. And then the island is split into these municipalities. For example, when we first uh, moved here, we were living on uh, in Slales, the municipality, which is the western side, and now we live in Nesville municipality, and they usually have a city seat by the same name. We live in Nesville, we used to live in Slalza, and then a number of other smaller uh, towns there. And first and foremost, all your taxes go to the municipality, and then you have some amount of federal taxes on top of that. But, uh, Beth, you would like this. The, the Pretty much the focus is on the local government first. I do like that. Tell us more. What kinds of services do you expect from your local government there? Well, there's the children's services, which are amazing. Uh, my son goes to what's referred to as Bernahill. Uh, it, it literally translates to children's garden, but it'd be a misnomer to call it kindergarten. That's for children ages three through six. Before that is Vosu, uh, which is zero to three. The local government pays, I believe it's like 80% of the cost. It's like, uh, comes out to be a thousand US. And then I pay $300 myself to send my son there. And that's only because we're in a fairly high tax bracket. I have friends who are in lower tax brackets and theirs is even more subsidized or in some cases, absolutely free. And it's, just phenomenal education. It's like a, a Montessori school where there's uh, one teacher to, I think it's like every six students and they pay attention to them and they're teaching them things like how to put on their own clothes and they have cooking days where the children learn to cook their own food and all sorts of responsibilities to get them ready for school ages. Wow. That comes to mind first. And so that's every child in Denmark is going to have access to a program like that. Correct. And that includes refugees that are fresh out off the boat and, uh, you know, people who live in the fancy neighborhoods. And Denmark is really big on integration. So, for example, in our neighborhood, we bought a house on the street. There's a lot of um, older Danish families. And then we have an apartment complex right behind us that has uh, immigrants from uh, from the Congo. You have refugees from uh, Iraq and uh, Iran. All, all mixed together. So my son in his class has people from uh, from all over the world. 
and all different income brackets. Talk to us a little bit about healthcare. Oh, oh my God. The healthcare is so amazing. It, and it's fascinating how quickly you get used to it and anything less than that just feels barbaric. When you register your home, you are assigned a doctor and the doctor is supposed to be in your town. For example, our doctor is a 15 minute walk away. And any problem you have, you go to your doctor. When you make an appointment, you get there, you swipe your yellow card, and you actually have your appointment on time. There's none of this waiting for half an hour. You don't see a nurse or somebody else first. You directly see the doctor. It's probably 10 or 15-minute appointment. They deal with your problem. If they need to refer you a specialist, they write it out right there. It goes in the national database, so all of your information is passed from doctor to doctor to doctor. And the same with uh, a prescription. When you have a prescription filled, you can go into any pharmacy and you just swipe your yellow card. And it's entirely free. Wow. It sounds amazing. But what's been the hardest thing to adjust to? Surely it's not all complete and total paradise. Is there anything you miss about America? (laughs) Throw us a bone. (laughs) I miss cereal. (laughs) I know that sounds absurd, but I really like all the different varieties of cereal and I, I miss the the grocery store where you can get just go in and everything you want is right there. I, I mean I have a lot of respect for the system here where they set it up so those competitions so you always have like I, I think it's at least three different competing chains of grocery stores and they're small because a lot of people don't have cars so you're used to shopping three or four times a week, but it's really annoying when it's, oh, I need bread. That means I need to go to Rema or quickly, but I need these uh, green beans and I can only get those at Manu, but I wanted those nuts. And that means I have to go to Netto, but I should stop at Fakta because they have the special soups. Uh, I just want to stop shopping. Mm. One of the things that always stands out to me when I travel in Europe is how organized everything is. And it takes me back to the conversation we had with Professor Michelle Gelfand about tight and loose cultures. It's so clear immediately to me when I'm in Europe that I'm in a much tighter culture than the United States. And as someone who's now really lived in both places, I'm interested in your perspective on whether the systems, the socialist systems that you were just describing, influence the culture or whether the culture allows those systems to work so well. And maybe it's just chicken and egg. But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how systems like the ones you live in now might work in America, given the cultural differences. I think this is an interesting thing because I always grew up being told, not by my parents, but everyone else, that politics don't matter, politics don't affect you, don't talk politics, they just have no effect on anything. And I internalized that. And I had this shocking moment here where it was, oh my goodness, culture is affected by politics, that policy actually shapes culture. For example, the childcare policy means that it's created this culture where every household, or almost every household, is a dual-income household. And this has created this equality between men and women. So now child rearing is not considered a feminine trait. It's just considered a good family trait and men co-op babies and men take as much child leave because the child leave is supposed to be split six months with one parent, six months with the other parent. And they put all these smart policies in place that has pretty much 
you know, annihilated sexism. Well, and I have to feel like they probably see child rearing more as a communal act than an individual act, too. I would definitely agree with that uh, that statement, that it's much more communal. I thought when I moved here that people would be concerned that I wasn't working. And in fact, nobody cared that I wasn't working. They just all cared that my daughter was over one and why wasn't she in uh, Bogus Do yet? And, and to be fair, I have met some other parents who chose to do this too. And there are some people who think that it's wonderful that I'm keeping her home until she's three. But for the most part, it has been met with great confusion. <laughs> so when you think about the differences that you observe culturally between Denmark and the United States, what stands out to you? You mentioned before we started talking that it's hard for folks in Denmark to understand that the United States doesn't have one culture. Yeah, well, so there's a lot of things. Definitely this idea of uh, multiculturalism is very foreign to Denmark. The idea is if you move to Denmark, you will assimilate and they might at some point be multi-ethnic, but they're not going to be multicultural. As Western immigrants, we get a lot of flack because people expect it to be similar to either what they've seen on American TV or Danish values. And I've had to explain to them multiple times, say my son's school, that I don't understand what the rules are because everything seems so foreign. 90% of the play, I see that the kids outside would just be considered utterly unsafe and unacceptable at uh, an American school. I was once watching these small children prop a bench on a stool and start sliding down it while one other child crawled under it and one of the teachers came up and uh, you know I thought she was going to say that's unsafe kids don't do this remember these are children ages three to six and my one and a half year old daughter is toddling around and instead she just said oh that bench is crooked here let me fix it <laughs> and then walks away <laughs> so trying to figure out what's acceptable and what's not is very confusing. Uh, another aspect is people obsess over my children not wearing enough clothing to the point that somebody actually wrote to the municipal government that concerned that my children were too cold because when I put them on my bicycle, they're under a blanket and they don't have jackets and hoods and mittens and boots because it's a 10 minute ride and it's 45 degrees by Maynard's standards. That's uh -huh. like, well, it's perfectly warm. That's funny. Wow. And they wrote to the municipal government. Did the municipal government do anything? Did they send you yeah, a letter? Yeah, we had a meeting. <gasps> See, that, come on, that is like culturally, that's out, that's bananas to an American that the government would say, your child does not have enough clothes on. Come on, let's have a meeting about it. That's so funny. Yes. I mean, another cultural thing that gets a lot of people, it doesn't bother me, is that Danes do not reach out with it. When I think of Americans, I think of us as being very effusive. We're very curious about strangers. You strike up a conversation with any stranger on the street. We talk in a lot of hyperbole, you know, that's amazing. Oh, you're a lifesaver. I love you. Danes don't do that. So for my husband, who's an introvert, he loves it because everyone leaves him alone. Huh. For myself, it's not a problem because I don't mind just going up and approaching anybody. But I've noticed this interesting pattern where if I try and approach the parents of the other children's school, I have a very high success rate of saying, hey, your kid's the same age as mine. Let's have a play date. If one parent is a foreigner or they're another immigrant, they say yes. If both parents are Danish, I get 
polite reasons of, oh, my child is too busy to get together, we're tired, any reason, sometimes just, oh, I didn't get your text message, or the second one, or the third one. Uh, and, and it's been an almost 100% failure rate if both parents are Danish. Interesting. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I mean, I think that I think that's two things. I think one is, you know, with the, with regards to the government, when the government 
is involved so intimately in aspects of your life from your health care to your child care, then I don't think it's surprising that they would, I don't want to say control, I think that's too harsh, but like that there would be a default involvement because, you know, government is paying for your child care. So, I mean, you can make the argument that, well, we have an investment if your child, your children aren't wrapped up in getting cold because we're going to have to pay for their medical care and we're going to have to pay if they're absent. It totally makes sense to me. I still think it would give a lot of Americans the heebie-jeebies. But with regards to the Dane, I, w- I wonder if the two, th- the play date with the with the two Danish parents. I mean, do you think that's? I mean, I think that you. I think you could get an. I think you would have people in Paducah make an argument that. The same argument. If I try a play date with somebody who's not from Paducah, I'll have a much higher success rate than I will if I have people with families in Paducah because so much of the time is spent with the people you know that you've grown up with that you have sort of a default community and you're, there's no there's no real motivation to, to go outside your in-group because you're Danish and you know everybody in the group and you have plenty of social opportunities. You know what I mean? Well, for the former of the government involvement, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think the interesting difference between the Danish government and the American government is that on a whole, Danes trust the system and they mm-hmm. trust the government. I mean, you have some bad players like the Danske Folkparty is just outright racist. I don't think there's any two ways to part, you know, about that. And the immigration minister right now is part of that, uh, the Danske Party, and she has uh, made some really horrible comments and, in my opinion, enacted some really awful policy. But on the whole, people trust the government, and so they don't mind the government necessarily being so involved because it's full of people who are well-meaning and they want the best for you. Certainly, as you said, like with the healthcare, and I honestly think it'll be great for the U.S. of having a monetary investment in your health is great because then you pass things like sugar taxes Mm -hmm. that incentivize companies to make food with less sugar in them. And it, uh, for example, in Denmark, there's no salmonella because there's a law that says if the chickens have salmonella, they have to be cooked, you know, killed and cooked. So none of the eggs have salmonella, none of the raw chicken you buy has salmonella because monetarily it's very expensive if people get salmonella poisoning. But the result is I can eat raw cookie dough. Mm -hmm. As for the bit about the two Danish parents, I honestly have no idea. And if I ever figure it out, I will let you know, because it even applies to um, cases where like one parent is adopted. So they are technically Danish, but uh, visually they look different. Those families also are willing to do a play date. So I I have no idea on that one. Interesting. So what is your experience with taxation? How is it feeling to you to be in a, a different kind of system than you had in the United States? Well, I think, first of all, it's really interesting that in English we use the word taxes, and in Danish you use the word skit, which uh, literally means treasure, and it's probably the most common uh, endearment for a child, that you hear people all the time say to children, oh, me little skit. You never say to a kid in the U.S., oh, my little taxes, I love you so much. And I think mentally it really changes your framework when you're talking to the treasure department about giving your treasure this year. And it's the same word that you use for loved ones. The other thing that really shocked me is yeah, taxes are high. And on some things it's really shocking, like 
stuff you don't need, books, commodities, gadgets, the 25% that hurts when you're used to the U.S. But grocery prices are about the same. And when you think, if you think about the U.S. in terms of healthcare is a tax and transportation is a tax, and even you could consider childcare a yeah, major tax. That's what I was going to say. Right. That when you take those things into account, and people love to say in Denmark too, I know somebody moved to the U.S. and they were paying more in taxes than they were in Denmark, that the benefits for your tax dollars here are so much greater that you feel like what money you do have goes a lot further. Even things like in Denmark, the bank and your job and everyone else files your taxes for you and you just get a sheet to look at and say, is this correct? Yes, no. So you're not paying for somebody to file your taxes for you. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, it would be interesting, especially because once you are funneling both your treasure or your taxes, child care, health care through the government, then you have a system and a mechanism through which to adjust for inequality and to adjust for differing levels of earning. And so here, if you're on your own, you make you make not enough money to find a place to live, to afford child care, to afford health care, figure it out. Whereas if in Denmark, like you said, I mean, it, there's adjustments to be made. So you would, I'm assuming, pay less taxes. You would also get more subsidies for child care and health care. And then you then you have you have a sort of a system through which everything is funneling that can make adjustments for people who just cannot meet their fundamental needs. Whereas you have America with homelessness and child poverty and child starvation and all these things that I'm assuming you don't see a lot of homeless people in Denmark. There aren't homeless people. It's amazing. And we have, they call them uh, like Knights of the Open Road, which are like social mavericks who have chosen to live out of the system. There's down the street, it's like the equivalent of a homeless shelter, but it's an address they can register for the yellow cards and they actually can keep stuff there so you don't see people hauling around all their possessions. And even there's a lot of uh, seasonal land where you see them all summer long and now when the weather's cold, I don't know where they go. Um, what fascinates me the most about them is you can usually tell Landsberghille by his uh, eccentric cats, of which I don't know the backstory, but by their dogs, because they get more money from the government if they have a dog, because it's considered a dependent who's better for their well-being. And the other interesting thing is that there isn't any real poverty in the way that the taxes are set up. You feel, feel much more of a sense of equality and that what people have are choices they made. Like, for example, we don't own a car, but we have a house. And uh, we did this because the car seemed like a needless expense when we can take buses and trains and we have bicycles. I know people who live in apartments and they choose to have cars. Mm. Uh, the people who aren't as well off get uh, more subsidies from the government. So in terms of how much taxes they pay, it evens out. So you never feel like you have an astronomical amount of spending power over the per, you know the single parent down the street in the one bedroom apartment and even things like having children feels much more like a choice it's a very liberal uh, policy in terms of abortions but if you choose to have a baby when you're 15 you can still finish school you can still go to college you can still have a career it doesn't have a negative impact 
on your life like it does in the U.S. because the government takes care of you. Their biggest priority is making sure that children grow up to be healthy, functional adults. Is there a lot of connection in your conversations with Danes between the system that they trust and the politics, the party politics that they see these 10 different parties engaging in? Or do they feel like separate conversations? In general, I find Danes are not particularly positive about politics in general. I mean, you have the line of, ah, you know, they're all corrupt. Uh, You know, this party's okay, but that one's not great. So this is often their reaction to the U.S. And they say, well, you know, I, I will give you it's better than the United States. But on the whole, everyone seems very happy with how the system actually works. Uh, so, you know, the question of are politics moving in the correct direction definitely seems different than the conversation of I love my health care, my wife got cancer, and we didn't pay a dime. Thank goodness for taxes. Yeah, that's what I think is interesting. I think there does seem to be a disconnect between the the system and the party politics, where I think there's much more sort of overlap when you have one party using sort of the flaws of the system, particularly as a talking point, you're going to see more of a connection between our negative attitudes about politics and our negative attitudes or distrust of the government itself. Right. And that might even be the difference of uh, the strength of municipal government versus Mm. federal government, that the municipal government affects you much more strongly. I've never heard anybody specifically complain about Nestville Communes government. And if it's made up, I assume it's made up of different parties and whatnot, but that's never come up in conversations. And it's the municipal government that's that's primarily responsible for sort of the day-to-day running of the health care and the child care in their municipality? Yes. Do you see a lot of differences between like the school? Would you have a conversation with a Dane about a school in one municipality being better than a school in another or the doctors in one municipality being better than another? Oh, certainly, because when we first moved here and we were living in Slaelza, we had this problem of we needed to get a doctor, but Slaelza has a very high percentage of refugees. It's been referred to as the uh, the Detroit of um, the U.S., which I, I don't think is a fair comparison, but they have three of the ghettos are in Slaelza municipality, and the system is just very overtaxed. And uh, we couldn't actually get a doctor in town. We ended up having a doctor in the next town, which it it took an hour to get there by bus or train. And it took us three or four months to switch to a doctor in the town of Slaelsa, or even my son's Bonahel. By my standards, it was amazing. But having now switched to Nestville municipality, I can tell you that uh, it was very rough around the edges. Hmm. If you were to come back to the United States and be seated in our Congress, what is the top thing that you would take from your experience in Denmark that you think, boy, the United States could learn a lot from this? I think it's healthcare for all, that so many of these systems are tied together, but healthcare is such a, I don't want to say easy, but simple place to start. And it truly helps everyone and elevates everyone. And the other would be reasonable gun control. Did you know the language at all before you moved to Denmark? No, and it was a steep learning curve. Um, I feel very lucky that uh, because Dane set a fairly low bar for being good at Danish, 
but I, I've learned entirely through Duolingo, Memorize, and talking to small children at my son's school. When I was in college, my choir came to Sweden, and I know the languages are quite different, but oh my God, that language was difficult. We, we tried to sing a piece in the local language everywhere we went, and the Swedish was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I can't imagine. That was it. Yeah, because Danish, the, the Scandinavian joke is you have to talk like you have a potato stuck in your mouth, that mm-hmm. everything is like these soft sounds, and you look at words, and you think that like you're seeing consonants in the middle, but they're actually vowel modifiers like for example m-e-g-e-t is pronounced mel and m-a-d is mal wow well thank you so much for chatting with us this has been fast i could listen to you all day and i have a million more questions but i think this is a great introduction and just really appreciate your engagement with us from across the ocean it's been a delight and uh you're the only podcast that i wait on tuesday and friday for it to drop and listen to immediately i I love hearing uh what you all have to say and uh i even enjoy it more when i disagree with you well the feeling is mutual i feel the same way when one of your email pops up in our inbox thank you marjorie how do you say thank you in danish talk talk yeah yeah or you can say talk for day talk i love it thank you so much to marjorie for talking with us she is one of our most thoughtful regular emailers she always leaves me thinking and curious about perspectives and ideas that I had not fully considered as we're on a variety of topics. So we hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Beth, what is on your mind outside politics? Not a lot because we've been traveling so much. (laughs) I just finished Barbara Kingsolver's book, Lacuna, which I've been thinking about a lot. I know, Sarah, that you've read it. It wasn't one of your favorites, but I thought it was really interesting. I don't know that I would say it was like a real page turner, But I enjoyed the perspective. The book is about a kid who grew up in Mexico um, who ended up working for just a whole series of interesting people. But when I was telling my husband about it, he was like, it's kind of like Forrest Gump in a different setting, which I think is true. Um, But it really has interesting reflections on media because what happens to this boy as he gets older is he sees the power of fake news. Basically, this was written well before all of the current controversy, but it was very prescient. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. It's been good airplane reading for me. Yeah, it's not my favorite King Solver, that's for sure. I didn't dislike it as a book, but I think she has better books. So I'm also travel weary. I've been working my way through Stamped from the Beginning, A Complete History of Racist Ideas in the United States. Not exactly like travel reading, but completely fascinating and leaving me thinking a lot. But I was a little bit excited my flight last night got canceled because that meant I got to stay home and watch the Game of Thrones premiere. Now, you don't watch Game of Thrones. I do not. It's very intense. It's lots of violence and lots of sex and naked ladies. My favorite thing I've ever heard about Game of Thrones is this guy on Pop Culture Happy Hour sings the theme song as boobies, 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 boobies. (laughs) And so there was a scene in the premiere where there are lots of boobies. So I started singing boobies, boobies, boobies. I love Game of Thrones. Be clear, it's just a fancy soap opera with dragons, and that's okay. A very high production value soap opera with dragons. What I love the most about it I thought the premiere was good. There's lots of setup. It's okay. It's the first episode. Is it's just appointment television again, which I love. I love cultural viewing events. That's why I like watching the Oscars. I think it's so fun when there's all of us watching and reacting simultaneously to stuff. So 
I'm very excited about the final season. The episodes are going to get up to like an hour and 20 minutes. I also watched the Avengers Infinity War with my nine-year-old because we're going to go see the finale of that in two weeks, too. So lots of big fantasy things happening in April, I feel like. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Pants for Politics. We'll be back with you on Friday. We are very excited. On Friday, we'll be sharing with you our interview with presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Between now and then, keep it in Stone. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.